All right, as we turn to our Bibles in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Romans chapter 8, verse 11, I actually want to start us off with kind of a cute, somewhat humorous story, and as much as you can have a cute story about death or a humorous story about death. A man, a Christian apologist and philosopher named Peter Kreeft, tells the story of his non-Christian, non-religious friends. His two friends, not particularly religious, their mantra is live and let live, leave people alone, don't bug people. They have a seven-year-old boy. They have a seven-year-old boy. And one day in their family, they experience a great tragedy. They experience the death of the seven-year-old's three-year-old cousin, suddenly and unexpectedly. The parents try, out of the resources that they have, to help their seven-year-old process the sudden loss of his little buddy. The parents say things like, you know, death, you know, it's natural, son. It's going to be okay. It's part of the fabric of life. The seven-year-old's really not buying it. He's not really dealing with it. So finally, they, they do that thing where as parents, we sometimes explain a little too much, and it doesn't help. Here's what they say next. They say, come now. Death is natural. We all die. We all eventually return to dust, and we become fertilizer for the plants that the animals can come and eat. It's the circle of life. You remember Lion King. You saw it. But what does a seven-year-old do? He runs out of the room screaming, I don't want to become fertilizer. I don't want to become fertilizer. (laughs) That's our response, though, right? We don't want to become fertilizer. But it's also our response. Mom, Dad, what's going on? There's a lot of questions about death, and the Bible provides a lot of help, a lot of hope. At the same time, as we're in the book of Romans, we've been saying we're climbing this mountain of Romans chapter 8. We're climbing this mountain of God's great love for us, and when we get to the top, when we get to the pinnacle, Romans 8, 31 through 39, we see this panorama of God's great love. We've said that we have to take steps up the mountain, and three weeks ago, we took our first step. There's therefore now no condemnation. If we're in Jesus, that's our justification is the fancy word. Last week, we took step two. We looked at how we have the ability to kill sin and to put it to death. That's called our sanctification. Well, this week, I want to circle back to one of the verses, verse 11, and I want to see something of this great word called glorification. And as we unpack the power over death that we have, that is the third step up the mountain. With that said, let's go to Romans chapter 8. Let's read verse 11. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Grace Church, this is the word of the Lord. And it is given to us in love and for our good. Now there is a very simple truth in Romans 8, 11, and that simple truth is this. God the Father raised Jesus Christ, his son from the dead, and if the spirit of God the Father dwells in you, The same God who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life, will raise you, will raise your mortal body, your weak body, and your dead body when you draw your final breath. Why? Because if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. 
It's a simple truth. In fact, raise your hand if you've heard a sermon that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and that you will go on to eternal life. Has anybody ever heard of this before? It's kind of central to the Christian faith. My concern here is that we can go lukewarm to this. We can go, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. So what I want to do this morning to avoid that is rather than taking verse 11 and just wringing it for all it's worth, which is what I kind of usually do, go clause by clause, word by word, I want to do this. I want to take Romans 8, say, there's the truth. If the Spirit dwells in you, you will live. That's the truth. And now today... We're going to take a little bit of a different approach. We're going to go to other passages. We're going to hold them up as light, and we're going to see how they shed light on that truth, how they unpack that truth, and how they help us know what to think, what to believe, and how to live in the face of death. That's what we're doing. And this is our next step up the mountain, the glory of the truth that we are free from the power of death. Now, how this morning will we unpack this truth? How will we get at this truth? We're going to ask two questions, and that's all we're doing this morning. We're answering two questions. The first question we're going to ask is this, how does this truth play out? The second question that we will ask is this, how does this truth, how does this promise that I am free from death by the Spirit, how does that change my life in the now? And we will look at three ways. Freedom from death changes life in the now. So let's go to that first question. How does this truth play out? Let's start here. There's actually a lot of confusion on what the Bible teaches about death. If you talk to your seven-year-old, you can talk to a 60-year-old, you can talk to an 80-year-old, and you'll get different opinions on what happens when we die. So let's ask the question, how does this play out? What actually happens when we die. A little morbid, but we got to get this right. Right? Like people have questions. What happens at the point of death? When do heaven and hell really kick in? There's this rapture thing. There's a death thing. Help me sort this out. How do heaven and hell, Jesus's return, and my own death, how do they all connect and what happens? There's lots of questions. Let's get some clarity. I want us to start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Let's go there. It starts here. It starts in the garden, right? Adam and Eve have fallen. They've rebelled. God is cursing them. And now death has entered the world. What does God say in Genesis 3, 19? He says we return to the ground. We return to the dust. Our physical bodies go into the grave. They rot. They decay. No big surprise, right? Like no big reveal, no plot twist. We all know that. You do not need to be a Christian to know that truth. But that's just the start. That's just the start. We've got to ask another question. If my body goes into the grave, if it knows corruption, what happens to my soul? What happens to my soul? And this is where some of the confusion can kind of start to set in. There's many verses that we could go to, but there's one passage in particular I want to explore. It answers this question so very nicely. Let's go to Jesus' words in Luke chapter 16, verses 22 through 28. In this passage, what Jesus is doing is he's telling the story of a poor man who believes in Jesus and a rich man who does not. The poor man is mistreated, the rich man has it good, they both die, and watch what happens. This is where we start to get answers. Look at verse 22. Do you see how the poor man is taken by angels and united with Abraham? 
That is a way of saying his soul immediately goes to heaven. His soul immediately goes to heaven. How many of you know the story of the thief hanging on the cross with Jesus? Anybody? What is Jesus' words to that thief? Today, good, good. Today, right now, you will be with me in paradise. Your soul immediately goes to be with Jesus. But look at verse 22, because there's another question. If I'm a Christian, my soul goes immediately to be with Jesus. There's a question. What happens to my soul if I am not in Christ? Let's look at what happens to the rich man. Do you see how his body goes into the ground? The curse of Genesis 3 plays out on him. But where does he go? He goes to Hades, the Greek word for hell. He begins to immediately experience torment. Can we stop right there? This is not fun to say. I do not, like, get my jollies in talking about hell. I do not want us to be a church where we get judgmental and we beat other people over the head with the Bible. We look down on them. I want us to open the Bible, not crush the Bible against people. I want us to be a people, but also at the same time, I want us to be a people where we don't back down from hard truths, where we preach the full gospel. And so we've got to talk about this. We've got to talk about this. It's hard. Right? Like we're thinking of people we know, loved ones that we have in our life that don't know Jesus. We can't back down from this truth. And this truth even gets a little bit harder. How does it get harder? Let's go to other teachings of Jesus. Let's look at other places in the Gospels. Would you go with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 43? What does Jesus call hell? He calls it an unquenchable fire. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. What does Jesus call hell? An eternal fire. Look at John chapter 3, verse 36. Jesus says, if you do not believe in me, if you don't obey me, God's wrath remains on you. Oh, friends, hard words. But the implication there is this. It remains on you, and it will continue to remain. Unquenchable, eternal, remains. Do you see how not only heaven is eternal, but do you see how hell is eternal? Friends, it brings me no joy. I can't say that enough. But we have a term that we need to get our hearts wrapped around, get our minds wrapped around, a truth, and that truth is summarized in these three words. Hell is eternal Conscious torment. Oh, what a motivation to go share our faith with people. We don't just speak of what we are saved to, although we need to do that. We cannot leave behind what we are saved from. What we are saved from. Brothers and sisters. Oh, this is hard. This is hard. But here's a final thought. Something I want you to see. Do you see how I just quoted Jesus? All of the words I gave you were Jesus' own words. Do you see how I quoted from each one of the four Gospels? None other than Jesus himself taught and preached on the doctrine of hell. Should we back away from it? We shouldn't. Some churches make it a policy not to talk about things like this. 
We don't use judgment. We don't use wrath. We don't use blood. We don't talk about death. We don't talk about hell. You win more flies with honey than you do with... But here's the thing. We know more about hell and death from Jesus than just about anyone else in the Bible. Do you want Jesus? If we want the biblical Jesus, we can't give part of Jesus. Do you see that? We can never be a church that backs away from hard, sad truths. No, we have to hold high that Jesus is the God-man, but he is the God-man who saves us. And he doesn't just save us to heaven, he saves us from hell. Now we need another final piece of the puzzle. Body dies, goes in the ground, soul goes to heaven immediately, soul goes to hell immediately. There's a final piece of the puzzle. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15. Do you see, do you see there in those bold words how at the trumpet sound, Jesus returns and he gives us an indestructible, imperishable, and immortal physical body. When Jesus returns, we get a material body. We get a physical body. We resume living in the flesh, and that flesh cannot be destructed, so we go to live forever in a body like I can feel, right, in heaven, or we have no eternal physical existence in hell. Oh, brothers and sisters, I know this is hard. I know this is hard. I know this is hard, but we've got to be clear. Your children will ask you, your non-Christian friends will ask you. Some of you have these questions yourselves. We need to bring clarity, not confusion. We can't shy away from this. What confusion does this help clear up? Well, let's look at this. Let's look at this. There's some teachings in the church that we need to be clear of. How many of you have heard of soul sleep? Anybody? That when you die, your soul just goes to sleep until Jesus comes back. No, that's not true. We get something better. When you die, you immediately go to be in the presence of Jesus. The soul does not fall asleep. When the Bible says we fall asleep, it means we die. No, you get to know Jesus immediately. If our souls immediately go to be with Jesus, that means good news. There is no purgatory. (laughs) You don't have to go and burn off your sins. No, you get to go be with Jesus. Some people believe in something called universalism. Has anybody ever heard of this? Universalism. This is all dogs go to heaven. There is no hell. No, this is not true. Think about how cruel God the Father would be to send his son to die if there is no hell. Think of this as good news in another way. When you're in heaven, you won't live next door to Adolf Hitler. Like, that's a good thing, right? Like, Jesus, um, this is a big mansion, Thank you. Can I move about 50 blocks away? (laughs) I'll take a smaller home, right? Like, you don't have to have that conversation because universalism isn't true. There is a heaven, there is a hell. But there's another thing we need to talk about. In the church, there is this thing called annihilationism. Can everybody say annihilationism? Have you ever heard of this? It's the idea that hell is temporary that we ultimately just burn away, we disintegrate away. It's usually proportioned to how much sin we've caused. It's kind of like universalism meets purgatory, and eventually it will go away. This is in the church. There are pastors who will teach this. There are pastors who will preach this. There are people who will toy with this. It's emotionally very appealing. But if hell is the unquenchable fire, if it's the eternal fire, then we have to say no to this. 
If you cling to this, you've changed the gospel. How have you changed the gospel? Because you have changed what Jesus Christ saves us from. Please be aware of that. Please be careful of that. Also, please be careful of telling your grandkids, Nana or Grandma will become a butterfly. When you see a butterfly, little one, think of me. That's me looking down on you from heaven. No, you're waiting for a physical body, a physical human body. You don't come back as a butterfly and then get eaten by a raven. No, this is good news. This is good news. Our Savior is too kind. Do you see what Jesus has saved you from? Do you see what Jesus is saving you to? This is good news. Do you see that he loves you too much to leave you for dead? Do you see that he wants you so bad for all eternity that he will not let death stand in the way? Do you see that he has fixed his Holy Spirit in you and it will not leave you? Death can sever so many bonds in our lives, but it cannot sever the bond we have with Jesus Christ when you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Do you see the beauty and the goodness of this truth? Do you see his love for you? Do you see how this is yet another step up the mountain of God's love? It gets better. It gets better. This is not just a beautiful truth. This is not just a true truth. Like sometimes in sermons, we've got to make the application how you live. Other times, we've got to make it what to believe. Today, we get to do both. You see, it's a true truth. It's a beautiful truth, but it's also a good truth. It's a useful truth. How is it useful? Let's go to our second question, and let's look at three ways this promise of life from the Holy Spirit changes life in the now. You see, this truth, I've already alluded to it, this truth that we have freedom from death in the Spirit, it's something we should savor. It's something we should delight in. It should work maybe a little bit of water in our eyes as tears of gratitude come. It's something we should bask in. It's something we should be more overjoyed in than if the Bears were to make a Super Bowl appearance or if the Chicago Blackhawks were to get Patrick Kane back. We should cheer louder for this truth, be warmed more by this truth, but it's also a useful truth. How is it a useful truth? Three ways, three ways. Let's look at the first way. This is a useful truth. Go with me to Psalm 90, verse 12. We've already read it, let's read it again. The first way it is good and helpful is this. If I have the Holy Spirit and I am free from death, then it makes me focus my life so that my life will count. It makes me focus my life so that my life will count. Look at those beautiful words. Teach us to number our days that we may get what? A heart of wisdom, a perspective. If we were to literally number our days, would you do that with me for a minute? The average life expectancy in the United States is 76 years. That works out to something like 28,000 days, little less. I'm about to hit, I don't know, 43, 44, I did the math, I can't remember my age now. I've lived something like 16,000 of those 28,000 days. When you think of life and you come at life from that angle, doesn't that make you want to make the remaining 12,000 count? Doesn't it make you want to, to make them matter? 
I mean, we live in a distracted world. We want to be all things to all people. We, we want to know everything. We want to do everything. We want to conquer everything. Just look at our social media feed and how much time we spend on our phones. We live in a distracted world with so much potential, so much opportunity. But here's the thing. We're not designed to do it all. We're not designed to experience it all. When God made you, he gave you specific gifts with a specific purpose for a specific period in time. When we embrace that our bodies will fail us one day, it forces us to focus. We embrace that we are limited. We embrace that time is limited. We embrace that as we get older, our limitations increase. We get a sense that we don't want to waste our life. We develop a sense of urgency about life. Today matters because tomorrow is not guaranteed. We start to filter out all of the clutter, all of the distractions, all of the lessers, and we hone in on what counts. We start to go deeper into God's word. Why? Because we've got to know his preferences. We've got to know his priorities. We've got to know his opinions so we can get after the things that matter the most to him. As we do this, as we eliminate clutter, we can invest more deeply in our marriages, in our children, in our grandchildren, in our family, in our jobs, in our work. But we can also invest deeply in Jesus' church, in Jesus' mission, and we can even invest deeply in knowing him just for the sake of knowing him. We can stop making Jesus' mission for this world a side dish to the main feast of our lives, and we can switch it around, and we can dress our life off of Jesus' mission because he gets driven more to the center. When we embrace that life here is short, it really does have a focusing effect on our lives, but there's a pushback. You could push back. You could say, okay, Pastor John, I hear you, but what if my plans get thwarted? Right? Like, like, what if I'm focused? What if I'm trying to make my life count and I get thwarted, right? Like, what if I adopt God's priorities? I run after it hard. I make a plan that he would be proud of and I'm, I'm pursuing it with vigor and my spouse leaves me. I can't control that. What if my kids don't turn out the way that, that I wanted them to? I can't control that. What if I get fired or what if I lose all my clients and financially I can't go and do these great things and I feel like I can't make my life count? I can't control that. What if I keep sharing Jesus with people and no one ever responds? I really can't control that. What do I do with disappointment? What do I do with discouragement? Here's good news. Here's good news. The truth of Romans 8:11 is not this. You will die, so make your life count. The truth is this. You will die, but you will go on to new life. And when you enter into that new life, you will enter, you will enter into a place where you will see the fruit of your labor. You will enter into a place where you will still be rewarded for all you've done and all you've tried to do. King Jesus will reward your efforts. He will reward your intentions. All those times where you labored for Jesus and the results just weren't there, guess what? Oh, guess what? They will be jewels in your crown. Your frustrations here, your failures here, your foiled plans here, you will find that they were not in vain. What does this mean for you in the present? It means this. Because we number our days, 
We get the energy and the focus to make our lives count, but we have the strength and the perseverance to work through the discouragement and the hard times and to keep on keeping on for Jesus. That's number one. We focus our lives. What's number two? How does this truth help us in the now? What's the second way? It's this. If I have the Holy Spirit and I am free from death, it gives me a freedom and a power that this culture and this society just cannot provide. It gives me a freedom and a power that this society and our secular culture just cannot provide. Let me borrow from one of my heroes here, a man named Tim Keller. He wrote a book, I brought it with me. It's worth your time to read, it's called On Death. As you can see, it's short, and as you can see, it's small. It's my kind of a book. It is a wonderful, wonderful read. In this book, Pastor Keller starts off with a chapter talking about why our culture avoids death and why our culture is so scared of death. Let me start you with a story. Let me start you with a story illustrating that we cannot talk about death in our culture. Let me tell you about a man named Mark Ashton. Pastor Mark was a pastor in Cambridge, England. He was well-beloved, highly influential. In fact, people still study his sermons, listen to his old lectures even to this day. In 2008, Pastor Mark was diagnosed with terminal gallbladder cancer. But because of his faith in Jesus, he approached his impending death with joy, with confidence, with poise, with, with, with eloquence, and with an elegance that would catch other people off guard. They were amazed at how freely and winsomely he could speak about his excitement at going to meet Jesus, at how freely he could talk about his freedom from regret. He could talk about how freely, he could talk freely about where he felt grief or where he knew lament. He could talk freely about moments of self-pity, moments of doubt. It made other people uncomfortable with how free he was to talk about death. In fact, one story runs this way. He went to the barber shop to get a haircut, sat down, and his barber started to strike up the usual conversation with, what's on? Derek, did I get it right? What's on? What's going on? How's it going? What's on? Mark says, well, I just found out I've only got three months to live. Stone cold silence. No matter what Pastor Mark tried to say, what questions he tried to ask, he could not get his barber to speak one word for the rest of the haircut. That is how much our culture tries to avoid death. Does this sound familiar? Who wants to talk about death on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon, right? It's not pleasant. Why? Why? Why are we a culture that avoids death so much? Well, Pastor Keller then goes on to say it's because we fear death. We fear death. Why are we a culture that fears death so much? He gives several reasons. These reasons are good. You need to know these reasons when you're talking to other people. You need to know these reasons for yourself. He says, first, we fear death because we don't see it as much. If you lived 100 years ago, death was an everyday fixture. You walk past a cemetery every day, people died, bodies went out in the streets. You're always waiting on the next plague, the next farming accident. Death was something that you saw with your own eyes. If you ever go visit the Amish country, you will understand this. It's the same way. Today, death is more private. It's not as public, right? Where do people die? They don't really even die in hospitals anymore. We go off to hospice care, 
right? Like we kind of shield it. We put up walls around cemeteries. We don't want to think about death. We're scared of death. We don't understand it. We're not used to it. That's number one. What's the second reason that we fear death? The second reason given is this. In our secular modern culture, we really have lost much of our sense of transcendence, much of our sense of a God that is there and is very, very big. If there is a big God out there, then where do you get your meaning from? Where do you get your purpose from? You get it from him. You get it from him because he's higher. If you question God's existence, if you doubt God's existence, if you wonder if you can really even know God, where are you going to get your meaning from? Where are you going to get your sense of purpose from? You're going to get it from the here and now, and you're going to have to get it from within. See how we're back at bashing, follow your heart? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Why doesn't this work? Because death is the great equalizer. It swallows up the now, it swallows up the within, and death forces us to realize if I create my own meaning, then guess what? My life might be futile. What I think is significant is not really that significant. Death forces us to wrestle with the futility of existence if we have to create our own meaning. What's the third reason that we fear death in our society today? The third reason is this. We've lost categories for sin, for guilt, for our need for forgiveness, and for judgment. I mean, what is the cardinal sin in our culture right now? What is the number one way to bring offense? The number one way to offend someone or or to bring offense is to not let them live with freedom to not let them pursue who they think they ought to be. We are a culture that wants to maximize freedom, so we suppress sin, we suppress guilt, right? Like like sin is, don't do that. Guilt is, I should not have done that. We've got to turn that down, or we're not free to pursue whatever we want. Do you see how this doesn't work? It doesn't fit. We try to suppress these things. And if you suppress those things, you suppress your need for forgiveness. But this doesn't work. This doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? It doesn't work because when you die, when you're on your deathbed, guilt and sin pop up. Have you ever sat with someone who's dying? What do they talk about? Regrets, mistakes, failures, wrongs that they wish could be righted. You cannot suppress it forever. That's Romans chapter 1. Try as we might. Our God-given consciences are still there. We're hardwired, we're hardwired by him, and death is a reminder that there really is a judge out there, and we have to go meet them. Oh, we're scared of death. And where does this leave us as a society? Where does this leave us as a culture? It leaves us as a culture that wants to avoid death because we fear death, and so we don't prepare people for how to face death. We don't offer the strength, the resources, the power to deal with death. Our society cannot because it avoids it. But if you're a Christian, if you become a Christian today, here's really good news. Jesus gives you the power. He gives you the strength. He gives you the resources. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. We read this earlier. 
Jesus took on death for us to break the power of death and to free us from what? The very fear of death itself. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, because the one who raised Jesus, his spirit dwells in you, you will know life, so you have the power of the one who raised Jesus dwelling in you. You have the power of the one who created the cosmos dwelling in you. You have the power and the love of the very author of life dwelling in you. You have the spirit of the one who chose you before time began dwelling in you. That spirit has given you a new heart and that is a down payment on a new future life. If you are here and you are a Christian, if you are here and you become a Christian today, you have already passed from death to life and your future with Christ is etched in stone and death cannot touch that. Do you see how this gives you power? Do you see how this gives you strength? Do you see how you can reflect on your own death? Do you see how you can talk about it? Do you see how you can prepare for it? You do not have to stuff death into the closet of your brain. This is a power we need. This is a power our society cannot offer. And this is a power that Jesus Christ offers you. So how does it change life in the now? It forces us to focus, number one, and number two, it gives us power and freedom that nothing else can offer. What's the third way it improves life in the now? Here's the third way. If I have the Holy Spirit and the guarantee of freedom from death, it teaches me how to respond when I lose a loved one. When I lose a loved one. Our reactions to death in our culture, when we don't know what to do with death, when we fear death, when we avoid death, it leaves us kind of vacillating between two extremes. What are our two extreme responses to death? It's basically stoicism on the one hand and spiraling on the other hand. What are those two things? Let's look at stoicism. What do we mean when we say stoicism and a stoic reaction to death? Stoicism is putting on a brave face, it's being strong, it's repressing, it's stuffing, it's ignoring our loss. People outside the church do this, like, like the parents of the seven-year-old, when we say things like this, come now, death is the end of the road, grieving makes no difference, just really, it's just self-pity, doesn't help a thing, come now, let's move on. We can be stoic outside of the church. We can be stoic inside the church, right? How many of you have ever heard this? Now, now, she is with the Lord. No need to cry. God works all things for good. Besides, she's in heaven. She's in a better place. Do you see how this approach isn't helpful? Stoicism doesn't work. Stoicism teaches us to deny that there's a real loss, that we're ignoring real pain, we're ignoring real anger, that life should not happen this way. This is thing, these are things that we cannot stuff and we should not stuff. That's stoicism. What's the second? It's spiraling. What's the second reaction, the second extreme? It's spiraling. What is spiraling? It's when in our grief, we are given over to our grief and we become completely undone. Our lives become marked by bitterness, by despair, and an unhealthy anger can set in and we become hardened or we become numb. We can even go into an emotional tailspin and not pull out. Over time, here's what happens. 
the volume on the grief and the pain gets turned up so high that we can't hear the volume on Jesus' great love for us. This is no fun to say, but sometimes when people go the route of the spiral, we have to lovingly enter in and help them see you may have been getting things from that person that you're supposed to only get from Jesus. In love, we might have to help point out very gently, very kindly, I think the Lord is calling you away from idolatry. That's why the volume is so high. That's why we can't get out of the spin cycle. That's why we're spiraling. There's your two extremes, stoicism and spiraling. Stiff upper lip, unchecked grief. Neither of these approaches are healthy. They're not physically healthy, they're not psychologically healthy, they're not relationally healthy, and they're not spiritually healthy. So what do we do? Let's compare these two responses to Jesus' own response to death. Let's go to John 11. Let's look at John 11 when Jesus lost his friend Lazarus and Jesus rested in the work of the Spirit. He teaches us how to respond to death in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Go to John 11, 34, 38. Let's look at verse 35. Jesus' friend Lazarus has just died and Jesus is on the scene to do what? What is Jesus going to do? He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to raise his buddy from the dead. But what does Jesus do in verse 35? Shortest verse in all of the Bible, two words, Jesus, Jesus wept, Jesus wept. He weeps at his friend's tomb. Jesus feels the loss. He feels the loss that his friends are feeling in their lives. He feels their pain. He does this even though he's about to raise them from the dead. Jesus teaches us that we can grieve, he teaches us that we can lament. He teaches us that we can weep. He teaches us that we can feel loss. It's not unmanly to feel these things and to display them. But look at verse 38. Look at verse 38. I'm assuming that a fair amount of you already knew that Jesus wept and you've heard that before. Look at verse 38. Do you see where it says, Jesus was deeply moved? If you literally translated that from the Greek, it comes from a Greek verb that relates to a horse snorting in anger. You can translate deeply moved as indignant, as angry. You can translate it as ferocity or fury. Some translators would have us read verse 38 this way, then Jesus was snorting with fury. Then Jesus let out an outraged cry. Has something terrible happened and you let out a, before you even know it? You couldn't control it, it just came out? That's what Jesus is doing. He is upset. He is angry. He is not happy. He is honked off. Jesus teaches us that we can feel anger in the presence of death. Why? Why? Why can we feel anger? Why does Jesus feel anger? He sees the corruption to his creation. He recognizes a foreign intruder is there in his kingdom. He sees a hated opponent on the battlefield, and he's come to put it under his heel. If Jesus feels anger over death, you can feel anger over death. You can say, it's not supposed to be that way. And Jesus says, I know, and I'm doing something about it. Come with me, join me, follow me. Let's do this together. 
Let's look at this. If you feel anger over death, and Jesus feels anger over death, then is Jesus your enemy? Is God your opponent? Is God the one you should be mad at? No. If you're angry at death, if Jesus is angry at death, then he is with you, he is for you, he really is there comforting you when you feel anger over someone's death. He knows what you feel, he knows what you are going through, so don't get mad at God. Don't blame God. Death is his enemy too, and even if the way he's tackling death is not the way we would write the script, he's doing something about it, and he's doing a lot more than you and I have ever done or ever will do. Do you see this? We don't have to be stoics and we don't have to spiral. We don't have to call other people to be stoics. It's not helpful. We can feel all the feels because Jesus did. We can even feel anger. Why? Because Jesus did. But at the same time, you don't have to spiral. You don't have to be undone. Jesus shows us how to feel the emotions, but Jesus is not undone. He doesn't spiral. We don't have to. Why? Because just like Jesus in John 11, we know that the Holy Spirit is at work and will do something. Jesus models for us these beautiful words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's bring them up. Paul writes, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died and their bodies are in the grave. Do you see how helpful Jesus is? is. What a savior. What a savior. There's three ways the Holy Spirit's freedom from death really does help us in the now. There is so much more that could be said. There's so much I had to remove from this sermon, but I hope you see God's great love for you. I see, I hope you see the hope and the power that he offers. I hope that you're seeing ways that you can live differently from our society and that we can live counter-culturally. I hope you see answers to questions and I hope you're more prepared to face your own death or the loss of a loved one or to comfort someone else. But to help us live out this freedom, I want you to do this. Let's ask three questions of ourselves this week. Let's actually go there with our spouse. Let's actually ask ourselves and kick around these three questions. We'll close with these. Number one, if I'm going to number my days and make my life count, then what changes do I need to make? What clutter needs to be removed? What priorities do I need to shuffle around? What parts of my walk with Jesus need more focusing? That's number one. What needs to change so I can make my life count? The second question I want you to ask is this. If I am empowered to be free from the fear of death, where does that power need to show up in my life? Do I need to be more courageous? Do I need to be more bold? Do I need to look more to Jesus to avoid people-pleasing or fear of man issues? Something as simple as this. Am I avoiding going and getting a will because I'm scared of what I have to face and the questions that will be asked? It can be that simple. It can be bigger, like, like this. Do I avoid visiting people who have suffered a loss because I don't know what to say or know what to do? You have the power to go and research that and spend time with them. How about this? Can I set aside time for my kids and I to go visit shut-ins? Can I go 
out and can I invite a widow or a widower in this congregation to come over so they can have rich fellowship as well? Oh, friends, when we don't have to fear death, we don't have to fear the awkwardness that can come from being around people who experience death or who are about to experience death. That's number two. What's number three? Final question I want you to ask of yourself is this. Do I tend more towards stoicism or do I tend more towards spiraling? What's my tendency If your response, if your tendency is stoicism, please start reading the Psalms. See how freely David laments. See how freely he grieves. Go read of his life and see how he weeps over Jonathan. See how he even weeps over some of his enemies dying, like Saul or Abner. But if it's the spiral, if you're having a tough time moving on, if it's affecting your work, your relationships, if it's affecting your friends, or if you've become hardened or numbed, then let's discuss that and please Don't fear, maybe even getting some professional help. There is healing ahead for you. As you live out these questions, you will walk in your freedom from death all the more. You will know God's love greater in your life, and you will take that third step up the mountain. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we come before you. Father God, you're such a blessing. As we sing, oh, Lord, you are so good to me. Oh, Father, you have freed us from the darkest mystery, the darkest hour that we can know, and that is our death.